of chapter 6. <clears throat> Acts chapter 6, and let's just begin reading from verse 1. It says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve uh, called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together in this place. And Lord, to come around your word and spend some time looking at the truths contained therein, Lord. And I pray that this morning you would empower me now through the Spirit. You give me wisdom and guidance from on high. And that everything I say this morning would be your words, would be your thoughts. And that, Lord, you would take your word and apply it to our lives, teach us and instruct us through it today. And may we leave singing your praise with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, we have an important uh, development, if you like, in the running of the local church. It provides us with some essential principles of church organization. Now, the chapter begins with the church facing a problem. A problem that's born out of uh, the ever-increasing size of the church. You know, the church was growing rapidly. Now, we read time and time again in those first six chapters of all these people getting saved. You know, thousands at one time getting saved. And so the church has grown exponentially in a very short period of time. It's become very large here in Jerusalem. You know, and this, of course, is a great blessing to see so many saved, to see the church increase so quickly. But because of the size, problems soon begin to arise. And the problem that's mentioned here in Acts chapter 6 has to do with organization. It has to do with the running of the church, with administration of the church. You know, this was a problem that was not encountered before. And, you know, it was a problem they didn't even see coming. You know, in a sense, you know, you remember the church has only just begun. It's in its early days. And, you know, they're all just gung-ho for the Lord. And then there's a problem before them. And so faced with this problem, the church needed to deal with this quickly and needed to put in place a solution to deal with the problem so they could continue on for the Lord. And so in these first seven verses here, we find that the early church, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, appoints the first ever deacons. These seven men appointed to be deacons within the church at Jerusalem. And you know, we could praise God that the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to record these events for us. You know, to record the events that unfold and the solution that's then put in place. Because as we now look at this passage, we see a pattern for how God desires us as a local church to function as a body of believers. And so this morning, I want us to consider how they dealt with the problem and also the truths contained therein. And so first of all, this morning, we see the problem itself, the problem. Verse 1, it says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied... There arose a great murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. You know, throughout the book of Acts, we've seen the devil attacking 
the early church on many fronts. You know, the devil has tried to um, cause problems, has tried to slow the work of the Lord. He has attempted direct opposition and intimidation. You know, remember Peter and John being arrested and put in prison overnight and they came out and, and they were put before the Sanhedrin, okay, and they were threatened to stop preaching in the name of the Lord. And then, of course, we saw that, again, all the disciples were threatened to stop preaching and teaching in the name of the Lord. And so Satan has tried direct opposition. He has tried intimidation. He tried also to corrupt the church from within. Okay, remember Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, with their lies and their deceit, seeking to gain uh, prestige and honor within the church. Okay, and again, the devil's behind that. Okay, the devil is working. He's trying to cause a problem. You know, these strategies have all been unsuccessful. The church has still progressed on. You know, the church has continued to be unified. The church has continued to honor and glorify the Lord and to see people get saved. And so Satan now tries another tactic. He tries to divide and conquer. He tries to divide and conquer by getting the church to fight amongst themselves. You know, the problem that arises here in verse 1, if left unchecked, it has the potential to split the church. It has the potential to cause great division in the, in the work of the Lord and to hinder the work of the Lord here in the early church. In verse 1, we're told that there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And so the division that occurs here is between the Grecians and the Hebrews. And it's all over a perceived wrong. The Grecians felt that they were being wronged by the Hebrews. Now the Grecians mentioned here are not Greeks, okay, in the sense of being Gentiles. Okay, they're not Gentiles. The Grecians mentioned here are Hellenists or Jews who have accepted Greek culture. Okay, they are Greek Jews in that sense. Does that make sense? They have a Greek culture. Okay, they've adopted that culture. And, and most likely they've come from all over the Roman Empire. Okay, and they've come back to Jerusalem. And that's why they have this Greek culture. They're more accepting of the Greek way of doing things. The Hebrews mentioned here are, of course, those who held on to their Jewish culture. Okay, they refused to change, refused, refused to budge. They wanted to remain Jewish in everything they did. Okay, and they mostly were from Judea. You know, even outside of the church itself, this was a point of contention. Okay, take away the church setting here. There was already contention between these two groups. The Hellenists, oh sorry, the Hebrews, they looked down on the Grecians or the Hellenists because they looked at them as being unspiritual. You know, unspiritual compromises. They're accepting this culture that's not theirs. On the other hand, the Grecians or the Hellenists, they regarded the Hebrews as having an attitude of holier than they are. You know, they saw themselves as being better than the Grecians. And so they had a bad attitude towards them as well. So without the church setting, there was already this problem. There was already contention between these two groups, suspicion between the two. And Satan, he seeks to take advantage of this um, suspicion, if you like. He seeks to take advantage of this that already is a point of contention and cause a division between the church. And we're told at the end of verse 1 that the, the Hellenists, the Grecians here, felt that they were being unfairly treated. It says, uh, because their widows were neglected in the daily 
administration. They felt their widows were being unfairly treated. They felt that their widows were being neglected while the Hebrew widows were getting special treatment. Now, the Hebrew widows were getting more than their widows were. That's not fair. And they were getting all upset. You know, caring for the widows was something that the early church had taken upon itself to do. You've got to remember there was no Centrelink back then. Okay? And so these widows, especially if they don't have any children, they've got no point of income. And so the church has taken upon themselves to help these widows, to look after the poor, to care for them. And this is the daily ministration that's mentioned here at the end of the verse. You know, they would take the collective funds and they would distribute to the poor. And one of the big groups was, of course, the widows. You remember earlier on in the book of Acts that we read on a couple of occasions, it says they had all things in common. We talked about the fact that many gave all their stuff to the church so that the church could supply and meet the needs of the poor. Well, that's what this is talking about here, this daily ministration. They take from those funds and they would meet the needs of the poor. And in particular here, we're talking about the widows. <clears throat> but the Hellenists or the Grecians here, they felt that their widows were not getting the same treatment as, as the Hebrew widows. Now, there is no suggestion here in the passage that this was deliberate. You know, there's no suggestion here that this was a, a deliberate thing that happened, you know, that they were deliberately not giving the same amount to the Grecians. There's also no suggestion in the passage that the oversight was even real. This is simply how they felt. This is what they thought was taking place. They felt that their widows were being neglected. And so we're not told that this was definitely happening. We're not told that it was happening deliberately. We're just told this is how they felt. You know, the reality is in such a large congregation, it was inevitable that someone was going to get overlooked, wasn't it? You think about it, the church has now grown to somewhere around 7,000 people and they're trying to distribute evenly and fairly. It's inevitable that someone's going to feel like they are being overlooked, that they're missing out. You know, Satan used this perceived wrong to begin a conflict. You know, this is how Satan loves to work. Satan loves to work by getting us to get hung up on a perceived wrong. Or an unintentional wrong. The wrong may be real, but unintentional. You know, Satan loves to divide churches over these things. And this is why God's word instructs us as believers to, in love, forgive one another. To forgive each other. When there is a wrong committed against us, God says to forgive. Just turn over quickly to Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> In Colossians 3 and verse 13, it says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. We're told here to forbear one another and forgive one another. That would be long-suffering with each other and forgive one another when we offend each other. Even as Christ has forgiven us you know a bit like in the early church it is inevitable that people will be offended by each other you know you put a bunch of people in a group together and inevitably someone's going to offend someone but god says that we are to forgive even if that person never asks for forgiveness by the way we are still to forgive and move past it god says we are to forgive you know holding a grudge because of a perceived wrong or something that someone did unintentionally or maybe they did it intentionally 
But holding a grudge, you know, all that does is lead to bitterness, doesn't it? It leads to bitterness, and the potential then is there to divide a church. Because when someone becomes bitter, what do we do? We start talking, start gossiping. We get friends around us, and we have a little group, and before long, there is a division. There is these people who have a problem because bitterness has spread. It all starts because we're holding on to a grudge over a perceived wrong or an unintentional wrong. And this is exactly what happens here in the early church. There is a perceived wrong here. They felt that they were being wronged by the Hebrews. They felt they were being neglected. And it led to murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. You know, the reality is if this was not dealt with quickly, the potential is there for a massive split, isn't it? There is the potential there for the church to split in two, and you have a Grecian church, and you have the Hellenist, uh, sorry, the, the Hebrews church. There is potential here for the church to split in two and not talk to each other, basically. Have a serious problem. And so the problem here needs to be quickly dealt with. And, you know, it is quickly brought to the attention here of the apostles. And the, the apostles here suggest a solution. That's our second point this morning. The solution suggested. The solution suggested. Verse 2. We read this. It says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you. Seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so we see here that the problem is quickly brought to the attention of the apostles. Now you've got to remember that the apostles are the leaders of the church at this time. There is no pastor as such appointed. They are the leaders, if you like, they're acting as the pastors of the church at this time. And so the problem is brought to the leadership's attention. It's brought to their attention. And verse 2 tells us that they call the multitude of disciples together to address the problem. It says in verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, Okay, so they call them together to address this issue, to address this murmuring that's taking place. If you like, they have a church business meeting. Now they call everybody together so we can talk about it, so they can address the issue. And the apostles begin by explaining to the people that it's needed, that it's, sorry, that it's not um, their responsibility to take care of this administration side of things. They begin by explaining to the people that they needed to remain faithful to the calling that God had given them, rather than becoming tangled with the administration of the church, that's what it says in verse 2 there. It says, and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Basically, they're saying this is not our calling. This is not what we were called to do. The apostles, they were called by God to preach and teach, to evangelize, to spread the gospel. They were not called to serve tables or to care for the daily administration. Now, let's understand here, they're not saying that it's beneath them. Okay, we need to make that point clear. They're not saying, oh, it's beneath us, we can't stoop down and do such a thing. Okay, it's not suggesting that they couldn't serve tables when the time came. The point is that that was not their main responsibility. That was not their calling from God. And it would be wrong for them to neglect their calling 
and take up this calling, spending all their time dealing with the administration side of things and forget to spend time in the Word preparing to preach and teach. And so by neglecting their calling, they would be sinning against Almighty God. And therefore, knowing that it was not their calling and that they couldn't do it without neglecting their own calling, they proposed to the church that they select seven men to be appointed over this business. Verse 3, it says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so they say to the church, they propose to the church, they say, what we suggest is that we select seven men to oversee these matters. And these seven men here are essentially deacons. And they're not called deacons in this passage, but that is what they are basically doing. That's what they're doing. Okay, and while the word deacon, the title deacon is not mentioned, you have the word serve, which is the same root Greek word. Okay, it's the same idea, to serve. And they were to be deacons of the church. They were to be servants of the church who would take care of the administration side of things. You know, they were, as it says in verse 2, to serve tables. That was to be their responsibility. And serving tables is not talking about just, you know, waiting on tables. Okay, it's the whole idea that they were to, to be the ones who handed out the, the funds. They were to deal with that side of things. They were to deal with the administration side of things. It's important that we understand here that not just any men were to be appointed to this position. You know, the apostles are very clear here in giving uh, characteristics or qualifications, if you like, of the men to be chosen. It says in verse 3, um, Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so the church was to look for seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. The point is, this is not a popularity contest, is it? Okay, the selection of deacons within the church is not a popularity contest. It's not about who has the, you know, the most following. You know, it's not about who is the best looking. It's not about who's the richest or anything like that. It's not a popularity contest. The selection of deacons was all about who is spiritually capable. Who is spiritually capable of filling this role of the deacon? You know, God has high standards for those who fill positions of leadership within the church. You know, whether that is the deacon, the pastor, you know, the Iwana Sparks director, Sunday school teachers, they're all positions of leadership. And God has high standards for those of us who are involved in those positions of leadership. The deacons here are no exception. Deacons were to be spiritually capable of fulfilling this role. We're firstly told that they were to be men of honest report. Now this simply means that they were to have a good reputation. They were to have a good testimony before both others within the church and those outside of the church. They were to be men who had a good testimony. They were to be known to be men of integrity, honest men, upstanding men. Now, these are the men they were to look for. Secondly, they were to look for men who were full of the Holy Ghost. Now, we've seen this idea of spirit filling before, haven't we? It's the whole idea of being controlled by the Spirit. And so we're to look for someone who not only was a man of integrity, honesty, a good testimony, but also someone who was 
controlled by the spirits. In other words, they would be spiritually minded men. There was to be evidence in their lives that the Lord was on the throne, that they were following the Lord's will, that they were in a right relationship with the Lord, that they were controlled by the spirits. And the reality is that when someone is controlled by the spirit, the evidence is there, isn't it? It's there to be seen. Okay, and this is the kind of men they were to look for. And the last quality there is it says that they would be full of wisdom. In other words, they were not only to be spiritually minded, but they were also to be practically minded. Okay, these men needed to be men who possessed the wisdom for the tasks that they were going to be appointed to. There's no good appointing someone who is of honest report full of the Holy Ghost, but they don't have wisdom in the area. There's no, po- no point doing that. It's appointing someone to a job that they cannot do. And so they needed to be men who were wise for the task before them. You know, they were going to be entrusted with the administration of the church. They were going to be entrusted with the funds of the church. And so they needed to be wise men so they could handle these affairs wisely. And so they would have looked for seven men who had a good testimony, controlled by the Spirit, and full of wisdom for the task at hand. And verse 4 goes on to tell us that this was all to be done so the apostles could concentrate on their calling. Verse 4, it says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now this is all to be done, why? So the apostles could be focused on what God called them to do which was prayer and the ministry of the word. And so really the deacons were to aid the, the apostles, the pastors at this time, the ones running the church, aid them by taking that burden away from them so they could concentrate on what God had called them to do. You know, even today as a church, you know, we are to look for men who fill, you know, sorry, when we look for men to fill the office of the deacon, we need to look for men like these. We need to look for men who uh, fulfill these qualifications. Men of honest report, spirit-filled, men who are wise. 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives us more qualifications. You know, Paul sort of elaborates upon these. Just turn over to 1 Timothy 3. Verse 8, it says, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, having, uh, holding the mystery of the faith in, pure, in a pure conscience. And let these also be first reproved. Then let them use the office of the deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. They that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and good sorry and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul sort of elaborates upon these qualifications, doesn't he? He sort of just takes those three, if you like, and expands upon it. Gives us more aspects, more ideas. The truth is the same. These were to be men who were qualified for the position. They were men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and they were to be men of wisdom. You know, we need to look for the same kind of men when we are considering deacons for the church. You know, we could praise God that in this church we have four men who fit these qualifications. We have four men who are indeed called to that position and, and God is blessing them in that role. 
Now, we can praise God for their labor of service, for the fact that they do take care of the administration side. Now, I know as pastors, we praise God for these men because it enables us to focus on the calling God's given us. You know, the preaching of the word, being in prayer, preparing for Sunday. And so we praise God for them because they take that burden away, which is exactly what their role is to do. To separate those two so that we don't have to deal with those things. We praise God for the deacons in this church. You know, if the day comes where we have to select new men to that role, then we need to remember these truths. And then we need to remember Acts 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and look for men who are qualified. As I said, it's not a popularity contest. It's not about who, you know, who do we want in there. It's who is qualified, who is spiritually capable of fulfilling these roles within the church. And so the problem has been identified and the solution has been suggested. And now thirdly, we see the church is involved. The church is involved. Acts chapter 6 again, verse 5. It says, but the same, sorry, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Pacorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Verse 5 begins by telling us that the saying pleased the whole multitude. Now the apostles, they come with this solution, this suggestion to the church, proposal if you like. And the people upon hearing this, they are pleased by this suggestion. Why? Because they recognize that it's wise. They recognize that there is wisdom in what the apostles are saying. They recognize the apostles are being led of the Lord, most importantly, in this suggestion. And so the church now sets about choosing seven men to fill the office of the deacon. And we read here in verse 5 this list of men who are chosen. You know, the interesting thing about these seven men here is that they all have Greek names. They all have Greek names, which seems to indicate that they themselves are from the Grecians. Okay, they're Hellenists. And these are the seven who are appointed to this role of deacon. Basically, what this shows us is that the church shows great sensitivity to the concerns of the Hellenists, don't they? The church shows great sensitivity to their concerns, to those who are offended, and they appoint Grecians, Hellenists, to the positions of deacon to oversee these needs of the widows. Now, the choice of these men reflects both the church's wisdom and the spiritual unity as well. You know, the Hebrews, they could have, you know, got their backs arched up and said, well, we want it to be fair, we want three from each group and maybe one impartial. You know, they could have got all upset, couldn't they? They could have arched their backs about it, but they didn't. Why? Because there was spiritual unity. They wanted the church to go forward. They wanted these brethren to be happy. They wanted these brethren not to be offended. And so the church's wisdom and spiritual unity is shown here as they choose seven men with Greek names. Seven men who are from the Grecian group, the group who were offended. And of these seven men who were chosen, there are two that we know more about because of the rest of the book of Acts. Stephen, of course, is the first one mentioned here. It says, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. You know, Stephen is given special mention here. Okay, it says, you know, he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And the reason he's given special mention is because, of course, the rest of chapter 6 is all about Stephen. And then chapter 7 
is all about Stephen. The focus is upon him. You know, Stephen definitely lived up to the qualification of a deacon, didn't he? Stephen definitely showed himself to be a man of honest report, a man full of the Holy Ghost, a man of wisdom. As he went and he preached and taught and he ended up defending the faith before those who accused him. And Stephen, of course, in the end was stoned to death, the first Christian martyr for the faith. Stephen showed himself to be worthy of this position. He showed himself worthy of the qualifications, lived up to it. The second man that we know a bit more about is Philip. Now, Philip um, is believed to be the same Philip that's mentioned in Acts chapter 8. Okay, in Acts chapter 8, let's just turn over there quickly in verse 4. It says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad uh, went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with, with palsies, um, and, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And so here in Acts chapter 8, we have um, this man, Philip, mentioned, going down to Samaria and preaching the gospel. Okay, and the Lord enables him to do miracles. The Lord enables him and uses him greatly to his glory. Of course, if you read on in chapter 8, we also find that he goes down and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot. And he leads that man to the Lord and then he baptizes that man as well. And so again, we see Philip living up to the qualifications, don't we? Philip, once again, is shown to be a man of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, a man of wisdom. God used him greatly, as with Stephen, to his glory. Now, as for the other five men for the chorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, this is the only time we see them mentioned in the Word of God. Now, there are attempts by commentators to um, you know, connect these men with other men of similar names who went to, similar pla- to, went to places and served, and some of them were martyred for the faith. But the truth is we don't know if it's the same man or not. We don't know if it's the same Nicholas. We don't know if it's the same Pecorus that went out and went to this place. And so we don't really know what happened to these men. We don't know much more about them. You know, no doubt they were men of similar character. You know, you've got Stephen, you've got Philip, and both of them live up to qualifications. No doubt these other five men were the same. These other five men fit the bill. And so these are the seven men who were chosen by the church as deacons. And we're told in verse 6 that the church sets them before the apostles. Okay, it says in verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. They bring these men before the apostles, and the church has nominated these men, if you like. And the apostles then pray for God's approval and guidance, and they lay their hands upon them. And they laid their hands upon them because, as we said earlier, this was a spiritual service. As much as it was a practical service of the church, this was a spiritual service as well. And the laying on of hands signified that they were set apart for this ministry within the church. Okay, they were being commissioned by the church to oversee the administration of the church. Commissioned by the church to fulfill this role. And so the apostles lay their hands upon them and commit them to this ministry. 
And the result of all this is that the church is blessed. And that's our last point this morning. The church is blessed. Verse 7, it says, And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And the great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now this section concludes with a brief summary of how the church is going. A brief summary of how God blesses the church following this decision to appoint seven men as deacons. As we said in the introduction, you know, Satan tried to cause division. Satan wanted to split the church. Nothing would have pleased him more than to see the church split into two factions. But instead, the church is strengthened and their ministry increases. Why? Because the problem was dealt with correctly. Now, the situation was handled with wisdom, was handled with sensitivity to those who were offended, and the potential for church split was diffused. It's important that we note in there as well that all parties acted accordingly as well. All parties responded in the right attitude. You know, if one party had responded wrongly, no matter what the apostles said, you still would have had a problem. All parties came with the right attitude and all parties came to agreement together. And they all together went forward for the Lord. The problem was diffused. You know, the result, it says here, was that the word of God increased. The potential was there for division, but instead the very opposite occurs. God's word is preached, it spreads, and people get saved. You know, the gospel spreads to great effect. You know, that the, the word of God is not halted at all. If anything, it's increased. We're told that the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. More and more people are coming to the Lord. More and more people are trusting in Him. The church is continuing to grow in spite of everything the devil has thrown at them. Everything the devil has tried to do from within and without, the church has remained unified and the church has continued on for God's glory. We're even told at the end of verse 7 that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. In other words, they believe and they get saved, these priests. You've got to stop and consider for a minute, a minute just how amazing that phrase is, that a great company of priests get saved. You see, these were one of the main group who opposed Christ and indeed his disciples, his apostles. They were the main opposition, along with the Sadducees, sorry, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but they, the priests were one of the main opposing forces. And yet here we're told that a great company are saved. They come to the truth. And indeed, God's great hand of blessing is upon the church here. Why? Because they dealt with the problem quickly and in wisdom, and God blessed. You know, the early church's way of dealing with this problem here and the appointing of deacons is a pattern for how God wants us as a local church to function. You know, he has given us two offices within the church. He's given us pastors and deacons. Pastors called to preach and teach. Deacons called to deal with the administration side of things. You know, the two work together. Two offices with different functions working together for the glory of God. And also we see an example of dealing with problems as a church as well. You know, the example is that we need to seek to deal with it in wisdom following the principles of God's Word. 
and that we all come with our attitude, our hearts right before God as well, so that we can deal with it together according to the Word of God. You know, as we conduct ourselves as God desires, then like the early church, we will see God blessed. We will see the ministry of this church magnified. That may not mean numbers, but it will mean quality. It will mean that we keep going on for the Lord in serving Him as the Lord blesses this ministry. Let's pray in the word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for passages like Acts chapter 6, Lord, which just give to us, Lord, ideas about how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to run uh, this church and function together as a body of believers, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to remember these truths, that Lord, we remember the, the role of the, the pastor, the role of the deacon, and that, Lord, when the time comes to appoint men, that we would look for men who are spiritually capable, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you help us as a church to function together. Lord, help us to deal with problems together as a body and remain unified as we seek to honor and glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.